Welcome to Mind, Body, Health, and Politics. I'm your host, Dr. Richard Miller. The mission of Mind, Body, Health, and Politics is to expand consciousness, stimulate thought, enhance mental and physical health, and encourage community. Today, we're going to have an exciting and educational interview with cannabis scientist, Dr. William Courtney. Some of you are already familiar with Dr. Courtney's pioneering work and I'm sure you're looking forward to this interview. First, however, news and notes in psychology and medicine. Many of you are concerned about your blood pressure and rightfully should be. Remember, blood pressure is the pressure of our blood, the liquid that flows through our body, in a closed loop. Picture, for example, a garden hose, and you turn the spigot, and water flows through the hose. If you close off the other end, you've got a tube full of water. If you step on that hose, you're going to increase the pressure in other areas of the hose because you squeeze the liquid out of that area that you stepped on. The more you increase the pressure, the more the possibility of finding a microscopic hole in that hose which would let water come out. Same thing goes true for our blood system. We have a closed loop, a vascular system of blood flowing through our system. And if pressure builds up too high, well, the blood can find... Excuse me one second, Michael. I can hear you coming right through the... Um, I hear you coming right through the microphone here. Um, so again, if, uh, if blood pressure increases, it increases the possibility of the blood finding a microscopic hole and leaking its way out. A very dangerous situation, and that's why we keep track of our blood pressure. The standard for blood pressure has been to keep your blood pressure 120 over 80 or below. 120 is the top number, and the bottom number is what's called diastolic. The top number is systolic. Excuse me. However... There are now new guidelines being suggested for people who are over 65. And the guidelines are suggesting instead of 180 over, uh, uh, 120 over 80, excuse me, that you could go up as high perhaps as close to 150 over 90, particularly if you're over 60 years old, without taking blood pressure medicine. And this is important because most, if not all, of the blood pressure medicines have side effects, particularly for men, erectile dysfunction, which is a very unpleasant side effect. So the bottom line here is that you want to be careful about getting involved with blood pressure medicine. You want to be discussing this deeply with your physician. And perhaps you want to also be doing certain things to make certain that you, when you take your test, you're getting an accurate test. So here are a couple of tips on that. Number one, if you're going in to have your blood pressure taken, or if you're going, say, to a Rite Aid or a CVC where they have a blood pressure cuff, and that's a great thing to do, be sure and go to the bathroom before you take your blood pressure. A full bladder can raise your systolic pressure by 10 to 15 millimeters of mercury. That's quite a lot. Um, Rest for five minutes before the reading. Yeah, 
Feet should be flat on the floor, legs uncrossed, and the cuff at heart level. These factors can also increase your blood pressure. Very important, make sure to put the cuff or have the doctor put the cuff on bare skin. Putting it over clothes can raise systolic pressure by as much as 40 millimeters of mercury. That can make you think you have high blood pressure when you don't because you took the test through your clothing. And the other is remain quiet during the test. Talking can raise systolic pressure by 10 to 15 millimeters of mercury. So these are all things that are extremely important. And the last one, of course, is what's called white coat syndrome. We get a little anxious in our doctor's office. Um, we're worried about what the result might be, and up goes the, t- the, uh, the pressure. Some doctors, such as uh, Dr. Sandy Brown in Fort Bragg, California, has a machine. Uh, he hooks you up to the machine, and then he leaves the room. And the machine then takes your blood pressure three different times over a period of about 10 minutes. This gives you an opportunity to settle down. The doctor's not in the room. Your anxiety goes down and you get a more accurate reading. But remember these basics, folks. Go to the bathroom first, rest before you take the test, put the cuff on bare skin, and remain quiet during the test. And then, of course, discuss discuss it and discuss it with your doctor before jumping into taking the medicine. If you have to take it, you have to take it. There are other things you can do to reduce your blood pressure, of course, and that has to do with alcohol, not drinking it, Losing weight, a lot of weight will add to your blood pressure. Smoking cigarettes, remember, nicotine decreases the area of those capillaries, and therefore that can increase the pressure, like the garden hose. Okay, let's talk a little bit about sleeping pills. So many people nowadays pop a sleeping pill occasionally to get to sleep because a significant percentage of us have what we consider to be a sleep issue, a sleep, some people even call it a sleep disorder. I'll cut to the chase on recent research on sleeping pills. And when I say sleeping pills, I'm going across the board, uh, Lunesta, Sonata, Ambion, you name it. The research indicates that by taking sleeping pills, we only fall asleep between 8 and 20 minutes faster than with a placebo. Now, for some of you, to fall asleep 8 or 20 minutes faster might be worth taking a pill for. For others, you might say, you know, I think I could just sort of lay around and meditate and uh, go into outer space and look inside my mind and poke around in there for 8 to 20 minutes and fall asleep and not take a pill. This is something only you can decide I personally, I think I'd rather lay around for a half hour before taking pills and then have to deal with the side effects of the pills both during my sleep and the next day. Some effects the next day include drowsiness, lack of energy, and perhaps becoming dependent on the pills. But do remember, folks, the bottom line is sleeping pills across the board only get you to sleep 8 to 20 minutes faster than a placebo. Okay, and that's for news and notes today. And now to our interview with cannabis scientist, Dr. William Courtney.
We're going to be talking with Dr. Courtney, of course, about his specialty, which is research in cannabis. There are four other major health issues in our culture which also deserve a great deal more attention. These four areas we're going to be reporting on in the future. They include poverty, obesity, nicotine, and alcohol. Poverty, well, for the haves to allow there to be have-nots is a short-sighted tactic which totally fails to take into account something I think we all know down deep inside our psyches, namely that we're all people on our planet Earth equally deserving of life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. The closer we come to providing all of us with food, shelter, water, education, health care, the happier we'll all be, and perhaps the fewer wars there will be. In future programs, we'll be bringing experts on to discuss what we can do about this tremendously fierce socioeconomic stratification that's going on in our country and around the world. Second, obesity. Yeah, our actuarial colleagues tell us that by the year 2030, just, what, 15 years from now, 87% of us are going to be obese or overweight. Yes, in, in 15 lightning-fast years, only 13% of the population will be trim, defined as a body mass index under 25. By the way, if you want to calculate your body mass index, which I refer to on the program so often, BMI, you can just Google it. You go Google and you type in BMI calculator and it'll get you there. Very easy. As a result of this obesity epidemic, the number of people with diabetes requiring kidney dialysis is going to be so high that doctors are already reviewing how decisions will be made as to who gets the dialysis and who doesn't. Committees are going to be deciding who lives and who dies. Obesity is one of America's Ebolas. It is imperative that we create a comprehensive full-court press to turn this epidemic around. We're going to be talking about it plenty in future shows. Number three, nicotine. Nicotine is embedded in the culture and has its roots in the way the United States made sales from tobacco help pay for our revolutionary war. The culture, we take shots at this epidemic from time to time and then we just run out of steam. It's so hard to keep working at it. We've still got, what, over 30 million smokers in the United States and close to 400,000 people die. A thousand people just about every single day. Can you imagine turning on the television set and seeing a thousand people on CNN or Fox or one of these programs? Another thousand died, another thousand died of something going on. Terrorism, fire, pneumonia, plague. Imagine every single day if they announced on the television or on your radio, another thousand died today, another thousand died today. What would, I don't know what we would do. It would be awful. It would just create terror. And yet the truth is, a thousand are dying every single day, day after day, from nicotine. We have to adequately address this. We have to put our heads together. We're going to be doing so looking at it, bringing in experts in the future. 
And number four on our list, of course, is good old alcohol. The use of alcohol to alter consciousness, we can date back to 8,000 BC. How do we do that? By analysis of the residue on earthenware relics that are found. There are periods in history when the majority of entire populations, including England and the United States, were under the influence of alcohol during most, if not all, of their waking hours. Some of our historians look at periods in England where there were 50 to 100 years where everybody in the country was drunk, partly because of our interest in alcohol and altering our consciousness, partly also because the drinking water was unsafe. And so people in England, knowing that the drinking water was unsafe, they got up in the morning and they started drinking beer, and they drank beer for lunch, and they drank beer for dinner. It was a way of getting some liquid in without getting poisoned. But the bottom line was, from the poorest to the king, they were drunk. Alcohol, the thirst for alcohol is so great that even after a period of prohibition in this country, we repealed it because, you know, it happened. People kept drinking and we created a criminal enterprise of selling alcohol. There are maybe 100,000 deaths from alcohol every year. Compare that to the deaths from cocaine in the hundreds. Cocaine has the dangerous reputation. Alcohol we continue to advertise on billboards, television, radio, and everywhere else. We're going to take a fresh look at alcohol on this program. But today, today we're going to be talking to Dr. William Courtney, if I can finish my introduction here and get him on, <laughs> about cannabis. Recently, President Obama told CNN medical correspondent Dr. Sanjay Gupta, that our government's health policy regarding marijuana should be directed by science and not ideology. This admonition by our learned president is contrary to the prevailing reality of how our government functions and laws are made. Case in point, in 1930, Andrew Mellon of the Mellon family, known for its riches, appointed his relative Harry Anslinger to be commissioner of the Federal Bureau of Narcotics. Mr. Anslinger clearly favored ideology over science. His ideology included a manic-obsessed hatred of people of color. For 85 years, the American people in the world have suffered from Mr. Anslinger's racist ideology. Lives have been lost, families shattered, cities damaged, and whole governments, such as Mexico's, threatened by Mr. Harry Anslinger's dramatic success at creating laws which enforced his ideology while ignoring science. Eighty-five years after Mr. Anslinger's federal appointment, our jails are burdened to contain the ocean of people of color whose only crime was an act Harry Anslinger made illegal on a worldwide scale. Alcohol prohibition in the United States lasted 13 years, during which two issues became obvious. One, the American people were not going to be legislated out of drinking alcohol. Two, making alcohol illegal spawned a criminal enterprise, we call it the mafia, whose gross revenue approached that of the nation's entire previously legal alcoholic beverage industry. Can you wrap your consciousness around that, folks? Take every business in the United States that's involved with alcohol, from the production to the distribution to the sales 
every bit of it, hard spirits, beer, and wine, and that is the amount of business that we gave to the criminal enterprise. Whoa. It might not be a stretch to say that Harry Anslinger created the largest, most successful criminal enterprise the world has ever known. However, when Harry Anslinger, followed by Richard Nixon and Ronald Reagan, declared war on drugs, they were in fact declaring war on people and mostly people of color. In response to this war in recent decades, people around the United States organized in order to attempt to bring science into this ideological war. Pioneering groups such as the National Organization to Reform Marijuana Law, NORML, and MPP, the Marijuana Policy Project, were referred to as drug warriors because they advanced the cause of overturning drug laws driven by ideology. When the president calls for, calls for science over ideology, when our American president calls for science over ideology, we are seeing the end of Harry Anslinger's 85-year rule. With us today is a man of science who will both share his research and his stories of being personally attacked by the true-believing descendants of Harry Anslinger. Dr. William Courtney has dedicated his professional career to the understanding of medical effects of cannabis with particular emphasis on the non-psychoactive cannabidiol, also known as CBD. Dr. Courtney has an extensive medical education that began with a BA in microbiology from the University of Michigan. He received his Doctor of Medicine from Wayne State. He interned in psychiatry at the California Pacific Medical Center and went on to earn his postdoctorate in forensic examination and forensic medicine. Dr. Courtney is a member of so many medical societies, it would take the rest of the show to read them all to you. His area of special interest is in the dietary uses of cannabis, which he considers essential nutrient in the diet of individuals. He's presented his work at institutes all around the world and travels regularly. Welcome to Mind, Body, Health, and Politics, William. Thank you very much. Thank you for coming here today. Pleasure's mine. Let's start at the beginning. How did you go from a residency in psychiatry, working with people's emotional problems, particularly through verbal uses and some prescription medicines? How did you go from that to becoming a research scientist in cannabis, known in the vernacular as marijuana? A uh, physician that I trained with asked me if I would approve of uh, his use of cannabis, and uh, I declined. I, I understood its recreational value, was familiar with that, and its commercial value, but I really at that point was unaware of its significance as a, uh, as a both a food and a medicine, and felt that any issue that he had could be better addressed by steroids and anti-inflammatories and pain medicines that I really didn't understand why uh, a weed you could grow in your backyard could possibly stand up to the pharmaceutical industry's uh, 
you know, uh, soldiers that are being, you know, passed from uh, physician to patient around the world. And, and so I, I declined, but in that, uh, in that action, I felt I should uh, take a closer look, started to uh, review uh, scientific articles and journals, and within a matter of months uh, became almost completely dedicated to understanding uh, more about herbal medicine, in particular this herb. And it's been uh, you know, six, seven, eight years of continuous uh, attendance of every conference that I could uh, find and uh, you know, bring my family to, and uh, that has then led to research. This is probably one of the finest places in the world to look at cannabis because of the legality that was in place, allowing people to have access to this plant, and uh, the individuals in Mendocino and Humboldt um, for years have dedicated their lives to growing and developing. And as a kind of an offshoot, they developed their own personal uses. And I was in the position to be able to learn from all of these people um, about their topical, about their dietary, um, about the various ways that they had evolved um, cannabis from being strictly a smoked product uh, to all of its many uses that are you know, coming uh, forward at this time. So if I understand you, you began your research into cannabis as a result of your interaction with this other doctor in the last 10 years. Correct. So you had a whole career where you didn't think much of this particular medicine. In fact, if anything, you questioned its, its validity uh, and then in this last 10-year period, you got involved and started doing your research. Correct. And how do you do research when the government is suppressing research? Very delicately. Very, <laughs> very delicately. Tell us about it. What is it like attempting to be a, you know, you're highly trained, you spent a great deal of your life in, in, in school and getting educated, uh, you have a career, a full career in, in, in medicine and psychiatry. You get interested in something that the government's... What do you do? I mean, how do you, how do you, how do you research it? I'm, I'm dumbfounded. Uh, a lot of the research has occurred internationally. Um, the International Cannabinoid Research Society has over 400 individuals from pretty much every country on the planet that gather together once a year to present their annual findings. And so you have access... At the university level, you can get a Schedule One license so that you can uh, work with cannabis and determine its constituents. When I first began, there were 66 of these 20 carbon molecules called cannabinoids. As of this last conference, we're now up to 150. So we haven't even... 150 different cannabinoid molecules have been identified? 20, 21 carbon cannabinoid molecules, and I'm certain that we're not done counting. I mean, we don't even know what's in this plant yet, which makes it difficult to be very dogmatic because we're still um, quite uninformed. Now, when you say you get together with this uh, group of scientists from around the world, that, and, and I've seen something in the literature that there are scientists who have been allowed to do a certain amount of research in England and also in Israel... Um, England, uh, GW Pharmaceuticals, there were a couple of Californians who brought 2,000 strains. Those were privatized by GW, turned into a corporate asset. Um, GW now is uh, has in, in the process of securing 500 patents on cannabis. Um, they're looking to dominate. Um, uh, they have products now that are 
approved in multiple countries around the world and are late-stage clinical trials in the U.S. Um, a lot of research is being done pretty much in every country. Myself became quite involved in Luxembourg, where the national government and national lab has been conducting a lot of the analytic studies and research, uh, working with people in the field. And so the question always becomes looking for a safe place to go to the next level, meaning my interest is in being able to provide affordable cannabis. Um, currently, we're looking at trying to control. As prohibition gives way, um, they're going to use valuation to control this plant, and that really is a, a very frightening concept. Um, they're going to make it too expensive and too valuable to use in a dietary fashion. Um, it's strictly to be used for as a psychoactive agent, and uh, that is really is an insidious part of the shift that is currently in place. Please elaborate on that. When you say an insidious shift, we need to know more. So the the medical marijuana um, area, for the longest time, was supporting the use of THC. Average use is roughly 10 milligrams or 10,000 micrograms. So that is the, the dose that your average person who uses it occasionally uh, will ingest in order to produce that psychoactive effect. When you say ingest, you're talking about through edibles. You're not talking smokables now? Um, um, smokables, edibles, anything that gets that amount into your body um, is going to produce the psychoactive effect. You'll have to take in more in an edible than you would in an inhaled product. Um, but if you can deliver that 10,000 micrograms into the serum, you're going to produce the psychoactive effect. And Americans have uh, appreciated that uh, that psychoactive effect is roughly uh, cost the same as a mixed drink. So people are willing to pay 5 or $10 for a psychoactive effect. So we're now talking in terms of the psychoactive effect about THC, tetrahydrocannabinol. Correct. And... With the edible THC, we can know what the potency is because it's on the package, correct? Correct. For all of those who are smoking this medicine or this substance, how does one know how much one is taking and how does that work? Um, <clears throat> the body's reaction is quite quick with an inhaled substance. It goes right into the pulmonary venous, drops into the arterial system, and within a matter of minutes or seconds, you have a, you can sense the, uh, the level of THC in your blood. And so it's very easy to control <clears throat> the inhaled forms. Um, you have one, one hit, and say, oh, you know, I'll have another hit, maybe have three, um, but you can immediately know what the dosing is. The problem with edibles is uh, while the package states that it's a, a 4X or a 12X or a 1X product, so there can be quite a bit of variability in that. And almost every person I know has accidentally ingested too much THC in a baked good. And once you've ingested it, there's no stopping that process. Um, and overdosing on THC is very, very unpleasant. It's not uh, permanently harmful, but it will psychologically uh, stick with you for decades. Um, decades? So, decades. Sometimes two or three decades. I overdosed in college, and uh, I'm never going to do that again. I mean, you'll hear people relating. You overdosed in college, and it's. I hope it's not going to affect our interview today. Well, yeah, no, well, I, wasn't, I was speaking metaphorically. Oh. Uh, that as I talk with my patients, they will, they will recall when they ate one brownie, didn't have an effect, so they ate a second brownie. Yes. 
still no effect. So they eat a third and a fourth, and all these people are making this up. They eat a fifth. Suddenly the first one is beginning to come on, and then the, the second, third, fourth, and fifth build, and then pretty soon they're in a state of, uh, you know, of uncomfortableness to the point that they won't do edibles for years and even decades later very, very cautious uh, because the, the edible, you really have no idea uh, how strong it was. You know, maybe a bunch of the keef got stuck in a part of the butter and all ended up in your brownie. And so there can be variabilities in a lot of the homemade edibles that um, make people pretty cautious. So we should see a change in that then in terms of protecting the consumer because as the product is manufactured, then there's going to be more consistency. Is that correct? That is correct. But the problem with this whole approach is I have, um, I have children with uh, juvenile rheumatoid arthritis or with uh, uh, Dravet's, uh, one of the coagulopathies, uh, channel coagulopathies, where they're having um, sodium potassium issues and they have a real serious seizure disorder. Some of these kids are on hundreds of milligrams of CBD. And CBD can be isomerized into THC pretty easily. Um, so the value really is comparable. And if, if we can establish that the value of the cannabinoids is a dollar a milligram, then the treatment of a lot of conditions can be three or four or five hundred dollars a day. The prevention of um, diabetes could be hundreds of dollars a day. The prevention of cancer. So essentially, it's too expensive to prevent disease because the highest and best use of these cannabinoids is the provision of a psychoactive dose, five to ten, and, and the society has embraced that valuation. And so essentially, they're picking up um, our own structure and saying, perfect, let's just lock that down. Let's establish that the highest and best use of this plant is the production of a 5 to 10 milligram dose of THC. And these other uses, who can afford four to $500 a day to treat a seizure disorder? Who can afford two to $300 a day to prevent diabetes? Cannabis is patented for the prevention of insulin-dependent diabetes and its treatment. But who can afford that if it's hundreds of dollars a day? Okay, we need to back up just a little bit so that our listeners understand that when you're talking about small amounts that are necessary for an effect, you're talking about THC tetrahydrocannabinol. When you're talking about much larger amounts that are needed for medicine, for treatment and prevention, you're not talking about THC, you're talking about CBD, cannabidiol. Please explain in words that we all understand the difference between CBD and THC. So CBD, cannabidiol, is a name of a class of molecules. Um, when you are eating the raw plant, you're getting primarily CBD acid, which is a very important molecule that acts at a uh, receptor called GPR55, which could become the third cannabinoid binding receptor. CBD in that plant is actually only present um, at a half of a percent. So there's very little CBD in what most folks would call a high CBD plant. If you take that plant and heat it, you destroy all the CBD acid and convert it into CBD. And so when humans become involved in this plant, we almost always involve the use of heat. We saute it, we put it into a butter, we bake it, we steep it into a tea, we smoke it, we vaporize it. Um, the use of heat is there for the creation of THC from THC acid, 
which is a non-psychoactive molecule. We, there's a plant out there that's uh, an ACDC series. It's 30% weight-to-weight THC acid. In that living plant, if you were to eat it the way animals do, the amount of THC is a quarter of 1%, even though almost a third of, of the weight is THC acid. That ratio is like 120 to 1. There's 120 times more THC acid, which is non-psychoactive, in the living plant than there is THC, which is the psychoactive component. 120 times more non-psychoactive, the THC, before it's heated up than the psychoactive. And then once you heat it, you take that quarter percent weight-to-weight and raise that to maybe 28% weight-to-weight. That's Thus the reason we heat it is the creation of huge amounts of THC. Okay, so then when people smoke it, for example, they're heating it in the cigarette or the pipe, whatever they're doing, so that's creating the psychoactive THC. Correct. And when they cook it, the cooking process heats it. Mm-hmm. But if neither, if you neither smoke it nor cook it up, nor bake it, nor, nor stupid bake it, it, nor vaporize it, then do you have the non-psychoactive CBD that's available for prevention in medicine? You have CBD in small amounts, very small amounts. You have a lot of CBD acid, which those two act at different receptors. This is a very complex system that we are now finding involved in the intracellular regulation. We're finding multiple receptors on every organelle inside of the cell. There was a lecture at the last conference on MT-CB1. Those are mitochondrial CB1 receptors. CB1 is where THC acts. Um, THC acid does not act at that site. Um, CBD acid acts at GPR55. CBD does not. So the use of heat inverts the chemistry of this plant in a very dramatic fashion. And the, the chemistry in the living plant really reflects 34 million years of evolution. And a respect for those ratios, I, I believe, is critical in fully benefiting from this raw plant this, as a vegetable. And as you say, it's a dietary essential in my mind. And that's my life goal is to establish clearly what is an adequate intake the amount of cannabinoids that will meet the needs of 50% of the population. And with uh, continued experimentation, we could establish an RDA, which is the amount of cannabinoids necessary to meet 98% of the population's need for these molecules. The voice uh, that you're listening to, by the way, is Dr. William Courtney. He is a pioneer in the use of non-psychoactive cannabis, known as CBD, cannabidiol, and he's here today on Mind, Body, Health, and Politics, educating us. By the way, when you hear Dr. Courtney talk about CB1 and CB2, he's talking about receptors, receptors, cannabinoid receptors in the brain. The, the CB2 is part connected to the more to the immune system, isn't it? Well, those were our early kind of uh, understandings that CB1 was in the brain associated with psychoactivity, CB2 was more in the body and associated with immune, but we are now finding CB1, CB2, GPR55, which could become CB3, uh, GPR18, which could become CB4, uh, GPR113, which could become CB5. We're finding these receptors functionally installed on the mitochondria, on the nucleus, on the endosomes, lysosomes, endoplasmic reticulum, Golgi apparatus, the entire intracellular structures have, um, it looks like the entire 
cluster of these cannabinoid receptors functionally installed regulating intracellular calcium levels and involved in in optimization of the cell, of cell health folks picture what dr courtney's talking about inside of our cellular structure way down inside of us picture little tiny catcher's mitts because that's what we're talking about little little tiny microscopic catcher's mitts that's a receptor it's that cell's way of capturing the particular molecule that's coming towards us in, this, in the, uh, in the uh, 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 CBD. Isn't that correct? Correct. So you picture that we, each little cell has this little catcher's mitt. If you have a catcher's mitt and, there, and, the, and the medicine comes in, you can catch it. If you don't have one of these catcher's mitts, if they're not available, then the, the particular medicine is going to swim right by and it's not going to get in. And that, that really is what you're talking about. That, that, and that we have so many of these catcher's mitts that we actually, in your research, you're telling us, can do both treatment, because the catchers catch the medicine, as well as prevention. There's a lot of work going on now with prevention of future. Tell us something about that, how the, how the catcher's mitts sort of create a, a protective shield around cells. There was it's stunning research recently by Yosef Sarn on um, ultra-low-dose THC, and the first paper was on neuroprotection. And ultra low dose THC is really the dose that is that if you eat the raw leaf, that is that's what the leaf provides. And ultra low dose is really, I think, a poor choice of terms. I prefer physiologic dose because if you're browsing on this plant, you're going to be getting THC, but in the hundred microgram range. When we have a psychoactive effect, we're doing ten thousand micrograms, and if you smoke two or three times a day, you're doing 30, 20, 30,000 micrograms of THC. And the animal kingdom is doing probably 20 to 30 a day. And if you browse every two or three days a week, um, interestingly, Joseph Sarn showed that that 100 micrograms changes the enzymes in your cell. And those changed enzymes last for seven to eight weeks. So a single dose of 100 micrograms, that's one one hundredth of a brownie changes the enzymes and protects your brain from ischemia the reduction of blood supply and oxygen associated like with strokes or heart attacks it protects from carbon monoxide poisoning protects from mdma excitotoxicity and he also had three additional cellular stressors and he was so amazed that this ultra low dose or physiologic dose provided protection for for months that he then went on to look at the heart and, and the, the cells of the heart were also protected by um, a physiologic dose of THC. Still amazed, he went to look at the liver. Uh, hepatoprotection also occurs within this very low dose of THC. So where do you get low-dose THC? Leaf. Where is leaf? Leaf is in the animal's environment in March and April and May and June and July and August and September and October. We store cannabinoids in our fat tissue for two months. If you want to get a clean urine so that you can show that you have not used cannabis, it takes a couple couple of months to leach out. Go ahead. Uh, you, you mentioned now that you can get this low dose from leaf but if, uh, of THC, which is a preventative. But before, you mentioned that in order to create the THC from the plant, you have to heat it up. And now if you just eat the leaf... Are you, you're not heating it up, so how are you getting that THC molecule into your system? The THC is there. 
the THC acid is there in a huge amount relative to the THC. And, and humans are just so attached to more is better. If a little is good, more is better. Whoever has the most wins, that's the best. And even more than that is fantastic. So we, we just, when you say low dose, it's not low dose. It's the physiologic dose. And right now we're doing a project dietary cannabis, and I'm asking any of my patients or people that have been working with me, we're trying to record how wild animals eat raw cannabis. And we know that deer and bear and raccoons and rabbits and cats and dogs and domestic animals, and we're hoping to be able to get into zoos and look at how primates, it's a leafy green vegetable that is pretty much consumed by all animals. They tend to kind of steer clear of the bud. They're not really big on eating the bud when it is present, but they will eat leaf from as soon as it appears until it's gone. And then our body buffers that and can provide another two months of of cannabinoids that it releases slowly. Um, And about the time we run out of our reserves, the plant's back into the environment again and is available for consumption. I'd love to see some studies comparing animals who eat the the, the, uh, cannabis plant and those who don't in in terms of both their health and also their general happiness level to, to, an, to, to animals who eat ma- marijuana walk around smiling well see so that's the psychoactive we are so attached to yes, cannabis the cannabis that's has, not what we're talking about has here, that's nothing right. to do with psychoactivity yeah. we are the only animal in 34 million years that have figured out how to create a tsunami of thc to create that psychoactive effect Ten thousand micrograms to get high the rest of the animal kingdom is doing 20 or 30 a day, maybe 100, 200, 300, 400 over a couple of months. Just it's, it's not a part of, it has nothing to do with this plant. If you take the plant and completely invert the chemistry, you can create a psychoactive effect, nothing to do with this plant. You're listening to Dr. William Courtney, who's one of our country's foremost scientists and researchers on cannabidiol, the non-psychoactive form of cannabis. I think at this time I should say that... Um, Can I correct just one thing there? Please. So there's 150 of these 2021 carbon molecules. Um, Icosanoid is a much more pleasant term because it will not alienate half of our population that feel cannabis is really immoral and horrible. Um, But of that 150, there are only a couple of them that are psychoactive. And the only way they become psychoactive is when you can create a huge amount of them. So there's probably 140 or more non-psychoactive cannabinoids in this plant that have phenomenal benefits and um, support cell regulation, cell health, organ health, organism health. So... um, CBD is not the only non-psychoactive. How should I refer to them then as the general? I would say the vast majority of the cannabinoids are non-psychoactive. But should I refer to them as cannabinoids? That's or is there a better word icos- to icos- indicate that I'm talking? Icosanoid. Icos- How do you spell icosanoid? Um, I-C-O-S-A-N-O-I-D-S. Icosanoid. Thank you. New word. I should mention right now that what you're hearing on this uh, program today are not advocacy uh, words. We are not promoting, neither is the station, nor am I. What you're hearing is a scientist bringing you information from his research over the past 10 years and a whole career in psychiatry. So, you mentioned a few moments ago that our culture, more is better, and how did you put it? To greater is even, is even greater is even more wonderful. I have read in the literature, and I'd like your opinion on this, that there's no such a thing as a fatal overdose of marijuana. 
is that true in your experience? In other words, if you over, instead of having a brownie, if you eat four brownies, as you said, because it took 45 minutes for the first one to come on and you waited a half hour and nothing happened, so you ate a second one and a third one and a fourth one, is it accurate in terms of your research that we do not have fatalities from overdose of marijuana, or is this not the case? No, that is the case. We do know. Lester Greenspoon of Harvard has stated uncategorically that he's been researching this now for 30 or 40 years, and we have no fatalities in the United States from overdosing, and you're agreeing with that. Uh, definitely. I believe there was one primate um, that they were able to kill uh, who ate 188 grams um, you know, they obviously had to force that much into them, um, but there's never been a human uh, that has uh, died from the consumption. I, um, I have an email here that I wanted to read to you, and it says, um, I have Crohn's disease and wanted to do some juicing. You can explain to the listeners, please, what juicing means. And I know that his, that's his field of expertise. That's yours. I know usually he mentions to use fresh fan leaves, whatever that is, but I only have access to the potent trim buds of the plant as if it were sold to be smoked. Can these buds be juiced? This is an esoteric question. I know they are rich with cannabinoids, but figured they would just be too sticky to work with through a juicer. Let me know your thoughts as well as dosage advice when it comes to ingesting or juicing the bud of the plant rather than the fan leaves. I think we can all sort of relate to that. There's a bud and then there are fan leaves. Crohn's disease. Crohn's disease, inflammatory bowel disease, uh, ulcerative colitis, are, uh, respond very well to cannabinoids. They're very potent both as anti-inflammatories and immunosuppressants with an overreactive immune system. Um, after 10 years, I'm trying, I've, I've eaten more humble pie than um, I ever thought I would. I now like to chew the leaf, not I, but a friend of mine would, would chew the leaf because when you chew the leaf, you deliver these antibacterials and anti-inflammatories to the gums of the mouth where you treat gingivitis. I had a patient who had four to five millimeter pockets where his gums had retracted. He made a mouthwash of cannabis, and he was able to uh, decrease inflammation infection, and Dennis came back and was measuring one to two millimeter pockets. So chewing the leaf, this is what every animal has done for 34 million years, and uh, we come along and, well, that's, we're so much above that, we don't want to do that. It does have a strong flavor. Mix it with a little bit of vegetable. Take a bite of carrot or radish and a bite of cannabis, and, and that makes that improves the kind of peppery taste that just the leaf has. If that's still too unpleasant, blend it. Blending puts the fiber and the content into the fluid, um, and then when you drink the fluid, you're going to get 100% of the contents. Do be careful. The cannabinoids are very water-insoluble or fat-soluble. So if it's a watery uh, drink that you're blending, um, the water will become saturated, and the most of the cannabinoids will be unavailable to be in the solution. They will be in the debris at the bottom, stuck to the vessel walls, and the foam at the top. So what it is that you're looking for is generally scraped off, washed out and thrown away, and you think you're doing the heavy lifting, drinking the juice, but in fact, um, it saturates so quickly that you lose the majority of what you were looking for when you decide to blend it. I think we're doing the heavy lifting just to go through this entire process, and I think there are a lot of people like myself, if we want to do this non-psychoactive CBD, we want to just go to the store and be able to buy it, and until we can buy it in Safeway, uh, we've got to uh, go to a dispensary, which means getting a prescription and so for the listeners who have these prescriptions and who are not yet able to go to Safeway for non-psychoactive 
CBD, cannabidiol, for prevention and treatment, they get, let's say they go in and they're willing to get one of these licenses, they walk into a dispensary, what do they ask for? Um, in this county, probably unlike anywhere else in the world, except for North Korea, where you can go to the grocery store and get raw cannabis. Hardly uh, a reason to move to North Korea, but uh, yeah. something well, they don't have. A, they don't have a central bank. There's another reason to go. I mean, there's several things going on over there. They get painted black, but I'm not sure it's quite I don't as think we want to get into a discussion of their uh, jails of the three generations. Yeah. No, no, they, they do have issues. But the idea that they have raw cannabis at the grocery stores is, is unusual. But anyways, in this county, in this state, more dispensaries will provide frozen juice, some actually will juice it fresh while you're there. They'll, they'll mix vegetables and toss in raw cannabis, and you can get um, a fresh drink right at the dispensary. You're not going to find that um, much outside of these counties just because the, the leaf, there's not a lot of value there. They would rather sell you a little bit of bud and make a whole bunch of money where leaf is you've got to refrigerate it and you've got the whole public health and food. So a frozen juice is there. Um, sometimes the freezing process results in the terpenes, which are the small aromatic molecules, um, being uh, sucked out and, and missing. And those are very critical synergistic molecules. They actually attach to the catcher's mitt at a secondary place and change the shape of the mitt and alter its binding affinity for the cannabinoids. So when you have both terpenes and cannabinoids together, which you do in the living plant, you have a prolongation of the signal. So the catcher's mitt, the very receptor in each of our little cells, changes shape and enables it to attach and grab a hold of the ball and hold onto the ball longer. So it, there's a synergistic interaction between the terpenes at an allosteric site and the cannabinoids at the orthosteric site. So you have the thing that concerns me, William, listening to this is what you said before. It's echoing my ears, which is that the cost of this non-psychoactive cannabis can be hundreds of dollars a day if you're using it for treatment. That's that's alarming. Uh, are we going to be able it to would do cost, It would cost you 20 cents if it was grown in the field like wheat or alfalfa. I mean, would, the biggest problem yes. with this plant is that it would be it, it would be just about free. You know, the, the cost of producing it is so minimal. Valuation is how you control the plant. You go to the grocery store and you see you know, emergency vitamin C, 1,000 milligrams, 79 cents. Right. CBD is more potent than vitamin C, almost twice as potent as an antioxidant. It's fat-soluble. It crosses the membrane, blood-brain barrier in an amazing way. It's $1,000 for 1,000 milligrams where vitamin C is 79 cents, if cannabis was grown as food, it would be 50 cents or 25 cents. And that's the biggest problem is that it would be cheaper if, if we could just buy it as food and we were allowed to raise it as food. But if we determine that its highest and best use is its conversion into THC and, and placement into a brownie and sold for $10... You could take that. I see where you're going with this. So what you're saying is as long as we're using it for mind alteration, and that's the primary focus, so it's a, a, a substitute or an alternative to alcohol and various other mind-altering substances, then we're creating an inflationary market. But if it were used for a food, you're saying it would be within everybody's reach, including the person who needs a certain amount that ordinarily would cost $500 a day. That might cost 
dollars or pennies a day. It's like, Is that correct? Correct. And so in my mind, I have the vision of table grapes. Every child should hopefully be able to get some, some fresh grapes to eat. You can, you can buy a, a bottle of Lafitte Rothschild and pay $1,800 for a bottle of wine or $300 or $79 or $50 or $5 or $10. You can take the grape and turn it into a psychoactive element and charge as much as you would like depending on the niche market. But that doesn't mean that you can't have raw grapes for food. Just because the highest and best use of that grape is to make an, a $500 bottle of wine doesn't mean that you eliminate the raw grape. Raw cannabis is food every person on the planet needs to have access to it. The fact that you can turn it into something that is psychoactive and charge a premium for, if you want to pay, you know, pay for that premium, go ahead. But do not restrict our access to this plant is food. The biggest problem with that is if it was became uniformly available, it would devastate the healthcare industry. Many people, if not all, have noticed that when they take the psychoactive THC tetrahydrocannabinol, smoke it or edibles, they get something that's referred to as the blind munchies. What is that about? And is there anything people can do about it so that they don't stuff themselves with ice cream cake and all kinds of other stuff that they wouldn't ordinarily eat? Well, envision that a normal dose of, say, Valium is 5 milligrams. That has one effect. If you're going to take 50,000 milligrams of that same drug, it could produce unusual or different effects. <laughs> yes, indeed. So if you're going to be doing 5 or 20 micrograms of uh, THC in raw leaf, and that's what every animal, deer, bears, cats, dogs, everything, they, they do, they just munch on a little bit of leaf, and that's 5 or 20 micrograms. And then we're out here doing 50,000 micrograms a day and producing unusual effects like, you know, uh, appetite stimulation. And that can have specific use if you're cachectic or, you know, there's a serious issue where you want that effect. Um, but we have to, to separate out extreme pharmaceutical megadosing from dietary use, which uh, is going to support cell health. That's what we're talking about here, the difference, the difference in dosages between mega doses and doses that are really used for prevention and, uh, and for treatment. And for treatment, of course, you're mu you must be aware of the, that famous case in Colorado that Sanjay Gupta brought to the American public of the convulsive, the, the baby who was convulsing 100 times a week. And One of my patients uh, was a fellow who is the cornerstone of that movement. Um, we start out with a one-to-one -one plant, meaning equal amounts of uh, CBD acid, CBD, THC. Um, there was no benefit. He went to a two-to-one, twice as much CBD as THC, no benefit. Went to a three-to-one, very minimal benefits. We eventually got to a 95% CBD to 5% THC, so almost a pure CBD plant. His child went from 400 seizures a day to a couple a week. He's been very outspoken, and he actually kind of reached out and contacted um, uh, the mother of that child and uh -huh. was involved and actually laid the groundwork for what became that. You know, but but the fellow who did all the heavy lifting and brought that back into our life, um, you know, was a fellow who I, I watched him uh, deal with his son's <clears throat> Dervais syndrome, which was you know just a horrific condition. You've you've heard uh, Dr. Courtney mention Dervais syndrome a couple of times. It's a form of epilepsy, and uh, there are convulsions associated with it. 
And, and that's an interesting point because it's a sodium channel defect. It's a single amino acid substitution that alters the sodium channel. And these cannabinoids, we know, not only act at receptors, but they also act at channels. They also act at enzymes, and they also are active as uh, in chemical reactions as antioxidants. So this plant's interface is not just at the receptor, but at at other organ, other structures like channels, and then once again involved directly at enzyme actuation, and then involved uh, and consumed um, in the, in the neutralization of reactive oxygen species as an antioxidant that's fat soluble, which makes it a very very special antioxidant. So people listening, William, they hear this. They want to go. They, they decide they're going to go, and they're going to get. The, uh, the the prescription, they're going to go into a local dispensary. We have them here, say, in Mendocino. They're all over the country now. They want the non-psychoactive. What do they ask for? They walk in, they say, Should I, can I have some CBD? And can they get it? Can they get it powerful enough? If they take it every day, and you're scientific, in your opinion as a professional, if they walk into one of the dispensaries presently, not five years from now or ten years from now, but they go in there today, and they say, I want a bottle of this non-psychoactive CBD, and they take it every day is that the medicine that's going to work or you're making a face what is it uh? so the world is poised to dump tons of cbd on the united states uh, every time i go to uh, conferences in dublin and cologne um, there's a russian uh, fellow who's working with china and he wants to be involved in in selling cbd remember in the plant that is called a high cbd plant the amount of cbd is a half of one percent where 22% of its weight CBD acid. So we, there's CBC, there's cannabichromine, the cannabigerol, CBG, there's CBN, cannabinol, there's CBD, cannabidiol. So there's a lot of non-psychoactive cannabinoids. You can't say all of that. All you can do is say, do you have any raw cannabis? Because we don't even know about that miracle. What about the stuff in the bottles that have a little spray? Can we do it? That's just THC in the bottle that's so it's such old okay. technology. Skip it. Thank you so much for being with us today. As you can see, Dr. Courtney has a wealth of information. We're going to have to get him back on the program as soon as we can so we can continue this. But until then, I want to thank you for listening for today's broadcast of Mind, Body, Health, and Politics, which is made possible by our KZYX staff and our in-studio engineer, my dear friend Mike DeLaura. Please join us again in exactly two weeks, 9 o'clock Pacific Standard Time. Until then... This is Dr. Richard Miller reminding you that good health is worth fighting for and it's essential for life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Mm